Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. Glad you can join me today from my home outside of Denver, Colorado, as we study the Come Follow Me curriculum for February 24th through March 1st. Today we'll be studying 2 Nephi, chapters 26 through 30. Once again, I am not recording this lesson from my office in Hong Kong, but am still in my home outside of Denver, Colorado. Uh, I remain a refugee from the coronavirus. Uh, There is no church again this week in Hong Kong. They've canceled all Sunday meetings. Uh, Offices, including the ones that I work out in Hong Kong, uh, remain closed. And uh, everyone is still very concerned about the spread of the coronavirus. Um, I understand the numbers have been coming down somewhat, but still people remain very concerned. And because of that, a lot of the uh, services uh, that people generally come to expect, including uh, finding lots of food in the grocery stores, uh, are not uh, as they usually are in Hong Kong. So I'm taking advantage of the time. Uh, My family and I remain here. It remains a very difficult uh, situation in Asia. There are signs that it uh, might be turning a corner and getting better, but it is certainly uh, not back to life as normal yet. So unfortunately, uh, that remains the situation, though I love uh, being back uh, in Denver, certainly. This is where I grew up, and uh, it's uh, great to spend an unexpected, uh, unexpectedly long amount of time here, uh, thanks to this uh, terrible virus. So this week we uh, remain in Second Nephi. This is our second to last uh, lesson in Second Nephi. Um, we've done with Jacob's teachings. We're almost all the way done with Isaiah, so we're kind of on the home stretch. I know for me, finishing the Isaiah chapters feels like you finally reach the uh, you're biking and you reach the top of the mountain, and then you kind of get to coast home. Uh, with the final few chapters that uh, Nephi has to offer, and we will be studying some of those today. But uh, Nephi just can't help himself because he loves Isaiah so much. He's so well-versed in Isaiah that he continues uh, to quote from the great Hebrew prophet, uh, including uh, a few quotes in, in this week's chapter that will chapters that we'll be going through as well. Uh, In this week's lesson, we'll see Nephi continues to prophesy a lot um, about his own people, about what's going to befall them, uh, as well as our days. We're going to be spending a lot of time talking about uh, the latter days or the days in which we we currently live. Um, And so it's always interesting to try to take uh, these visions, these understandings of our day that Nephi has, and then try to uh, fit our current situation uh, and the way in which we view our days into Nephi's framework, into what he's uh, provided. Um, it's always, you know, getting like a, a second opinion about uh, the challenges that we, we face today. I think it can be very helpful um, to do so. And, and we'll see that as we do so, one of the biggest battles that Nephi identifies that's going to be happening in our day 
will be a battle between uh, the philosophies of the world on one hand and, and the gospel of Jesus Christ on the other. And this is an, obviously an area that a lot of prophets have spent a lot of time discussing. Uh, we saw in the New Testament in our studies there that Paul spent a lot of time discussing the philosophies of the world on one hand and the gospel of Jesus Christ on another. Uh, Nephi also spends a lot of time um, discussing these and, and we'll be uh, going through some of his uh, analysis and discussion today. But let's get started in uh, chapter 26 as Nephi uh, gets started by talking. He begins by talking about uh, his own people and some of the things that he sees are going to happen uh, to them. But it's easy to forget that uh, as Nephi was prophesying of these things, that they were still 600, even a thousand years away from happening. And I think, you know, if any of us were to try to prophesy what happens 600 years, a thousand years in the future, I mean, that seems so unbelievably far away. Um, it's It's just hard to even think what the world's going to be like a thousand years from now. Uh, but that's what Nephi was doing. Um, and again, to us, as we look back, you know, 2,500 years removed, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Uh, but um, amazing, the foresight and Nephi's ability to prophesy uh, what happened to his own people. Um, and then it just adds credibility, I think, to his prophecies about us and, and our day as well. Uh, so let's start with, uh, in 2 Nephi chapter 26, let's read verses 8 and 9. But behold, the righteous that hearken unto the words of the prophets, and destroy them not, but look forward unto Christ with steadfastness for the signs which are given, notwithstanding all persecution, behold, they are they which shall not perish. And the Son of Righteousness shall appear unto them, and he shall heal them, and they shall have peace with him. Until three generations shall have passed away, and many of the fourth generation shall have passed away in righteousness. So Nephi here talks about uh, how his own people, as, as long as they listen to the words of the prophets, and this is him prophesying about what's going to happen uh, before Christ comes, as long as they listen to the prophets, uh, they will not be destroyed, and they will instead look forward unto Christ. Uh, with steadfastness. And one can certainly see here uh, talking about uh, those Nephites who believed uh, that Christ would soon be born and they were even threatened uh, with their lives if, Christ, if the appearance of Christ's birth did not come, the sign of Christ's birth. And of course, uh, the very day that it was appointed for those who believed in Christ to be killed, the sign of his birth uh, finally came. So that miraculous story we can see is, is Nephi literally prophesied of that right here. And I love uh, in, in verse 9 how it talks about the Son of Righteousness shall appear and he shall heal them and they shall have peace with him. This idea of healing and of, and of peace uh, being uh, descriptive of those who believe in Jesus Christ and those who accept his gospel uh, I think are such uh, powerful and appropriate appropriate words. Uh, Christ is a God who heals us from our wounds and from our woundedness as we uh, battle, as we uh, struggle on the battlefield of life. Uh, we are each we each endure different wounds, and we each endure uh, different areas in which we stand in need of healing. 
uh, before we are ready to return to the presence of God. And even in order to get through this life, uh, we have wounds that need to be healed uh, before we can go on. And so I love, I love this description of Christ being a God who heals us, who makes our wounds uh, better. And that you know, healing process is one that takes place you know, both within ourselves, you know, just as a wound heal. The, the doctor doesn't literally make your body better. The doctor doesn't heal you. Your, your body is what heals itself. Uh, the doctor facilitates that and in many ways makes it possible. Uh, but it's the working of the two together. And I think a lot of times that, that healing, that progression, that improvement uh, that is so necessary and also evidence of one who is a follower of Jesus Christ um, is, is, is prevalent here as we discuss this idea of Christ being a healing God or one who facilitates uh, our healing uh, from the woundedness that we all endure. And uh, in addition to Christ healing them, uh, we'll also have peace with him. Uh, Christ himself has peace. He is the Prince of Peace. And the idea that we can have peace with him, uh, enjoy the same type of peace that he does, I think is also powerful and, and a great promise. And this is, again, this is one that was given to uh, those of his posterity at the time of Christ coming to them. Uh, verse 11. For the spirit of the Lord will not always strive with man, and when the spirit ceaseth to strive with man, then cometh speedily destruction, and this grieveth my soul. So here we have, uh, you know, whereas in the verses we just talked about, the promises of healing and peace, uh, we have this reality that the Spirit of the Lord will not always strive to be with man. And I think this is both an individual, a statement about our own individual natures. We as individuals will not always uh, have uh, the Spirit in our presence. It will not always be there guiding us in everything that we literally do. Now, of course, as I say that, I'm reminded that we do partake of the sacrament, and part of the promise of doing that is that we will always have His Spirit to be with Him. It is always there when we need it, um, but the reality is uh, it is not always there. We don't always feel the presence of the Holy Ghost in every single decision that we make. We obviously want to live our lives so that when we need it, it's there. And we also have to fine-tune uh, our spiritual abilities so that we are able to recognize the Spirit when it comes. Um, but the Spirit does not always dwell with man individually, and especially, you know, it's very few people that have the Spirit constantly uh, in their lives, even though it is something that we should all strive for. So I think the scripture is both individual and collective. You know, obviously the Spirit does not always dwell uh, with a people uh, at, at all times. And, and the reality is that uh, over time, many fall away from the Spirit, including those that had the Spirit before. So that the Spirit does not always, will not always strive with man, and when it ceases, then speedily uh, cometh destruction. We're in dangerous situation when we do not have the Spirit with us, and when it ceaseth to, draw, to, to strive with us, to be with us. Uh, so three different gradations. You could always have the Spirit with us, which we just talked about is, is very rare and, and is not usually the case. You can 
often have it with you, which I think hopefully is the reality uh, for most of us if we're not in the in the always camp. And then you can have it cease to strive with you in which you do not have the influence of the Spirit in your life. And that's obviously the area in which we want to avoid. Now, uh, the converse to verse 11 is verse 13. And that he manifesteth himself unto all those who believe in him by the power of the Holy Ghost. Yea, unto every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, working mighty miracles, signs, and wonders among the children of men according to their faith. So even though the Spirit does not always strive with us, either individually or collectively, everyone is promised that, that if we believe in him... He will manifest himself unto us by the power of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost testifies of Jesus Christ and manifests Jesus Christ to us. And those are two separate ideas, right? Not only only do we get a testimony that Christ is real, that he is a source of our salvation, but rather we get manifestations of Jesus Christ. We learn about Jesus Christ. The Spirit not only tells us Christ is real, but it shows Christ to us. It helps us to learn about him, not just to know that he is real, but as we strive to keep the commandments and as we try to become the best that we can, as we read our scriptures, as we pray, as we strive to follow his example through service and love to others, Christ will manifest himself unto us. Not only we will have a testimony of Christ, we will in fact know Christ and that knowledge That manifestation comes through the Holy Ghost. Then, So in these verses that we just talked about, uh, this was Nephi talking about his people and their dealings with Jesus Christ. Starting in verse, verse 14, he shifts somewhat. And he's no longer talking about his Nephite people and Christ manifesting himself unto them, as is the promise, as long as they will keep the commandments. But instead... We're talking now, starting in verse 14, uh, about the, the latter days, about our days. Let's go ahead and read verse 16. For those who shall be destroyed shall speak unto them out of the ground, and their speech shall be low out of the dust, and their voice shall be as one that hath a familiar spirit. For the Lord God will give unto him power, that he may whisper concerning them, even as it were out of the ground, and their speech shall whisper out of the dust. So here as we talk about those who have been destroyed and their their speech, their testimonies coming forth out of the dust, it's a clear allusion to the Book of Mormon. There's this great record of a people that have been destroyed that was buried in the ground and then it comes out of the ground to provide its testimony to us. And I love the idea that when it when it says that their voice shall be as one that hath a familiar spirit it is one that we will recognize one that it sounds like spirits or voices that we have heard that we have heard before and i love this idea that the word familiar of course is related to the word family uh, so it is something that sounds like that we will be able to relate to in the same way that we're able to relate to our family members and you know how often I think as we study the Book of Mormon do we feel like we come to know the great uh, men and women that are talked about in the book these great prophets and 
you know, Nephi and Alma and Moroni and Mormon, as, as we understand their stories and their stories unfold to us, they become so familiar to us and their, their spirit and their testimony becomes like, like that of a family member. Uh, I think it's a, it's a powerful idea and, and it shows really how powerful the Book of Mormon is, that it is something that becomes so familiar to us as we read and study it. Mm-hmm. Verse 20, and the Gentiles are lifted up in the pride of their eyes and have stumbled because of the greatness of their stumbling block that they have built up many churches. Nevertheless, they put down the power and miracles of God and preach up unto themselves their own wisdom and their own learning that they may get gain and grind upon the face of the poor. So I think this this idea here, and obviously this is not a a compliment uh, to these churches, but rather this is a warning that Nephi is giving us uh, about churches in the latter days that put down the power and the miracles of God, uh, which I think is very um, dangerous uh, in and of itself, that you would have a church that doesn't believe in a God capable of doing miracles. Uh, you know, the idea of a God that has been completely rationalized or completely been explained away through scientific uh, analysis or, or other reasoning is, is not the type of a God that's capable of bringing the wonder and the power of God uh, into existence and, and filling the lives of its members uh, with with that power. Uh, it, it would be sad to be a member of a church that does not believe in a God that is capable of, of power and miracles. And it's hard to think why, why that church and the God preached in that church would really be any different than the God preached in a, in a church of science, uh, in a university, if you will. Um, but, but the idea that they would preach of a God that has power and they put down the power and the miracles of God. Uh, and why do they do this? That they preach unto themselves their own wisdom and their own learning. And they do this so that they can get gain. Um, so, you know, it's, I, I think here's clearly not talking just about, you know, a church in the sense of, um, you know, a building with pews and maybe a cross on top. Uh, but we're talking about the different philosophies of the world that put down the power of God in order to elevate their own explanations and their own uh, intelligence and understandings. And they do this so that uh, they can get gain. They do this for gain. And so as we compare in verse 16, those voices speaking from the dust with uh, the churches in verse 20 that put down the power and the miracles of God. The Book of Mormon, to me, uh, it's, it's obviously many things uh, to me and to many different people, but if nothing else to me, the Book of Mormon is evidence that God is a God of miracles. You have this book. You cannot deny that this book is there. You can actually physically hold it. So the question always will be, how did this book come about? Where did we get this book? Joseph Smith obviously has his explanation as to how the book came about. And his explanation is completely and totally miraculous. There's nothing simple. There's nothing ordinary. There's nothing everyday about the process through which the Book of Mormon came about uh, as described by the prophet Joseph Smith. 
and every other explanation that I have ever heard has has fallen down uh, in some way. Either it's proved to be a, a lie or a fabrication, or it, it simply does not make sense and is not as believable as the miraculous story that Joseph Smith gave. So in verse 16, we see the story of uh, people crying from the, the dust with a familiar spirit. And we have that in comparison to verse 20, these churches that put down the powers and the miracles of God. And to me, the Book of Mormon stands as you know an in-your-face testimony that God is capable of doing the miraculous, that miracles do pl- take place, that there are things in this world that simply defy simple explanation. And the Book of Mormon is in every sense one of those. It is evidence that God does miracles. And we have this book and its, the, its existence cannot be explained away. So again, I see the Book of Mormon as just being in-your-face evidence that God still does miracles. And I, and I love it for that. That's one of the great things about the Book of Mormon. And I, I believe that's one of the reasons we have the Book of Mormon in this day. Of course, the teachings are great. Of course, the way it brings us to Jesus Christ is, is, is something that we cannot live without. But I also love the fact that it is evidence of miracles, that miracles do take place as proven by the existence of the Book of Mormon. Verse 22. And there are also secret combinations, even as in times of old, according to the combinations of the devil, for he is the founder of all things. All these things, yea, the founder of murder and, of, and works of wickedness, of darkness, yea, and he leadeth them by the neck with a flaxen cord until he bindeth them with the strong cords forever. Now, I, uh, so, so we see here that discussion of Satan as he works in darkness and deceit to slowly uh, lead men according to his ways, uh, secret combinations, and he leadeth them by the neck with a flaxen cord. Now, that's not a phrase that we use in everyday vernacular, and so I I looked it up, and according to the interwebs, um, a flaxen cord is a thin linen thread that can easily be broken, which is very, very interesting, especially the easily be broken part. Satan doesn't necessarily start off by binding you down with heavy chains. He takes a simple uh, a, a simple thread, and then he uses that thread to slowly pull you along. And as he pulls you along, you get increasingly caught up in his lies until you can no longer escape. In the beginning, it would be very easy to escape, but that's not how he lures you in. It's not the strength of the cord that forces you along. Rather, it lures you, it attempts you, it attracts, it attempts you, it attracts you. And that's how Satan pulls you along with a flaxen cord until he bindeth them with strong cords forever. So he pulls you with a cord that can easily be broken until you're in his grasp. And then he uses the strong cords to bind you forever. A perfect description of the way in which Satan operates. Now, as we compare the way Satan operates to the way that Christ operates in verses 23 through 25. 
For behold, my beloved brethren, I say unto you that the Lord God worketh not in darkness. He doth not anything save it be for the benefit of the world. For he loveth the world, even that he layeth down his life, that he may draw all men unto him. Wherefore he commandeth none that they shall not partake of his salvation. Behold, doth he cry unto any, saying, Depart from me? Behold, I say unto you, Nay. But he saith, Come unto me, all ye ends of the earth, by milk and honey, without money and without price. So as where Satan is busy leading us by the neck with these easy cords, cords that can easily be broken, as he is busy tempting us away from our salvation, Christ does things in open. He, he does not work in darkness, it says in verse 23. And he does nothing save it be for the benefit of the world, because he loves the world. And he, and he commands everyone to come unto him and partake of his salvation. He doesn't work with a little bit of luring to bring you in until he can easily bind you with strong cords. He invites everybody. He works openly, promising salvation to all that are willing to partake of it. And so we have a very clear distinction here between the way in which Christ operates and the way in which Satan uh, attempts to lure all of us in. Now verses 29 uh, through 31. He commandeth that there shall be no priestcraft. For behold, priestcrafts are that men preach and set themselves up for a light unto the world, that they may get gain and praise of the world. But they seek not the welfare of Zion. Behold, the Lord hath forbidden this thing. Wherefore the Lord God hath given a commandment that all men should have charity, which charity is love, and except they should have charity, they were nothing. Wherefore, if they should have charity, they would not suffer the laborer in Zion to perish. But the laborer in Zion shall labor for Zion. For if they labor for money, they shall perish. So along the same lines of the way in which Satan tempts us with flaxen cords, uh, and, and that's compared and contrasted against Christ who openly invites all of us, we have this distinction between priestcraft on one hand, which again Nephi defines as men preach and set themselves up for a light unto the world that they may get gain and praise of the world. So we have this priest craft on one hand in which men uh, preach how wonderful they are, how they try to show the world how smart they are, and they do this for the purpose that the world will praise them and so that they can gain uh, money and power. That's priest, priest craft on the one hand, and that is opposed by the priesthood on the other hand. The priesthood is, uh, has been defined before this perfect plan of service, and it is a power through which both men and women uh, operate and serve within the church. It is the process through which the power through which the church is organized, allowing everyone to serve. And and we and Nephi emphasizes the importance of having charity, and that without this charity, we are nothing. So as we serve other people, whether it be inside the church or even outside the church, we do so out of charity out of a pure love of Jesus Christ, out of a desire to serve other people, knowing that as we serve with charity, as we serve others out of a desire to help and to improve the lives of those around us and to fulfill our covenants and keep the commandments of Jesus Christ, as we serve with charity, 
we are exercising our priesthood power on the one hand, as opposed to priestcraft on the other, which is not aimed at charity, which does not have the love of Christ or the love of others as its goal, but instead it has the love of self. It is the desire to make oneself bigger. It is the desire to better one's own position, either through the accumulation of wealth or of power or of praise or gain uh, in some other way from those around us. Whereas in verse 31, it says the labor in, in Zion labors for Zion, labors for this body of Christ, labors for this great purpose of making us all one heart and one mind. The whole purpose of the laborer in Zion is to build Zion, is to build this celestial kingdom, to build this perfect place where everyone can feel the love of God, where everyone is not in it for themselves, but in it for each other and in it because of their love for Jesus Christ. And if that is not our purpose as we labor in Zion, it says if we labor instead for money or for any other uh, personal or selfish reason, uh, the result is that we will perish. And so we can see here we've already drawn several uh, distinctions. We've got the distinction of the Book of Mormon on one hand, uh, compared with the churches on the other, and those ch those churches that preach that God is not a God of miracles. We have the distinction of the devil on one hand, who uh, slowly tricks people and leads them away with these flaxen cords that are easily broken. And then you have Christ on the other, who openly invites everyone to come and follow him. And then we have the example of priestcraft on the one hand, in which people labor to better themselves or to elevate themselves and for themselves to gain gain and glory. And then you have the priesthood on the other hand, in which we labor for Zion, in which we labor for Jesus Christ, and we strive to serve others because of the love that we have for him. And you can see a, a thread running through each of these. It's the difference between the devil's way of doing things. There's no miracles. Everything is cold. Everything is worldly. Everyone is in it for themselves. It's dog-eat-dog -dog materialism. And then you have the message of Christ on the other, a message of faith, a message of hope, a message of miracles and of love and of charity and of service. And that's what Nephi is setting up here. Those are the two distinctions that Nephi is establishing here in chapter 26, and we will see them running uh, through the rest of 2 Nephi. As we flip over to chapter 27, uh, let's start by reading verse 3. And all the nations that fight against Zion and that distress her shall be as a dream of a night vision. Yea, it shall be unto them even as unto a hungry man which dreameth. And behold, he eateth, but he awaketh, and his soul is empty. Or like unto a thirsty man which dreameth, and behold, he drinketh, and he waketh, and behold, he is faint, and his soul hath appetite. Yea, even so shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. I love the imagery here uh, in this verse 3. Those that do not follow Christ, those that follow themselves or follow the world's way, uh, they are going to awake hungry. They're going to have fought the fought. They have going to expend 
their resources and their time and their energy fighting against Zion. And eventually they're going to realize that it has left them completely empty. They have not been nourished. They have not been filled up by the battles that they fought, by the philosophies that they've subscribed for, by the lifestyles that they've given their all for. These will not fill them up, but as on the contrary, they will leave them empty. Just as a person who dreams about eating and drinking doesn't wake up nourished and hydrated, so too shall those that follow the philosophies of the world will not find themselves spiritually enriched or enlightened or any closer to God, any better prepared uh, to meet God and to return to his presence. Because our ability to turn to the, present, or to the presence of God is completely predicated on our relationship with Jesus Christ and whether or not we have entered into covenants with him and kept those covenants. So, of course, those that fight Christ and fight his commandments and his covenants, of course, they're not going to find that same nourishment. Of course, they're not going to find themselves better off and feeling fulfilled, but instead will find themselves alone and empty instead. Uh, And that's, you know, is is that a threat? I, I guess in some ways it is, but it's not Christ that does that to them. It is their own mistake. It's because they have chosen to chase that uh, which has no value. And as as we read in the earlier chapter, Christ's invitation, and I'm going back to verse 25, is, Come unto me, all ye ends of the earth, buy milk and honey without money and without price. Christ's invitation is, Come and get the nourishment that you need from me. I will never charge you for it. There is no price that you need to pay other than your own heart and your own mind. So, of course, there is a price, but it's not money. It is not the price of the world. It is not the currency uh, of the materialistic earth, but rather uh, it is the sacrifice of a broken heart and a contrite spirit is the price that we have to pay in order to receive real nourishment. Otherwise, we run the risk of, run the risk of waking up empty and uh, and, and, and dehydrated, uh, as, as to, to use the imagery of this beautiful uh, verse 3 that we just read. As he goes along in uh, chapter 27, he discusses uh, the, the, the darkness and apostasy that covers the earth in the last day. And then he talks about uh, this coming forth of uh, the, the Book of Mormon. And it's important to remember that we are fast approaching as Joseph Smith started translating these, remember he started translating the book of Lehi and uh, he translated the 116 pages of manuscript and he finished that and then he gave it to uh, Martin Harris and then it was lost. And he, he didn't, sh- and once uh, Joseph Smith had repented and was ready to start translating again, he didn't start translating from First Nephi. He started translating from the book of Messiah and he went all the way through the end of Moroni and then he went back and translated the small plates of Nephi. And so we're getting close to the end of the book. Uh, we're, you know, almost at the end of 2 Nephi and almost at the end of, uh, of, of his translation of the Book of Mormon chronologically. Uh, in terms of pages in the Book of Mormon, we only have 40 pages left uh, before we get to the very end uh, of 
what Joseph Smith translated. So as we get to Nephi's prophecies about the Book of Mormon, whether it be uh, the witnesses or whether it be uh, taking uh, translations to Charles Anton, uh, whatever it be that Nephi was prophesying about here, you know, we're, we're near the end here. We're near the end of this process of translating the Book of Mormon for the prophet Joseph Smith. So in some ways, this must have been terribly exciting for him because he's translated 500 pages and then to come upon these pages in which, uh, you know, an ancient prophet prophesied, clearly prophesied of the Book of Mormon, uh, must have been terribly exciting. But verse 12 uh, mentions three witnesses, and it was the translation of this verse uh, that spurred Joseph Smith to ask the Lord whether or not uh, other people could finally see the plates. And of course, he had kept this burden for so long in which he was the only one that had seen the plates and knew of the plates. He was the only one that could testify that he had actually handled the plates. And so for three other people to have that witness, to have that experience, and to have that testimony that these things are not made up but are, in fact, very, very real, uh, was a huge burden uh, taken off the shoulders of the prophet Joseph Smith. And then later, as we go to uh, verses 15 through 18, and these are actually quotes uh, from Isaiah here. A lot of this chapter 27 is quoted from Isaiah. Uh, we, we have an event in which uh, was which the prophet Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith felt was literally uh, fulfilled as uh, Martin Harris took the plates uh, to, uh, sorry, took a trans, a, a, basically they had copied down some of the characters from the plates Joseph Smith had. And then Martin Harris took it to a Columbia professor named Charles Anthon in order for him to look at uh, this copying of the characters in order to certify that those were, in fact, legitimate characters, that they weren't just, you know, something that, you know, little marks or random symbols that the prophet Joseph Smith had made up, but rather they were, in fact, uh, ancient uh, characters. And, uh, you know, famously, uh, Professor Anton said, yes, that they were, gave him a little certificate. Martin Harris was on his way out. He said, you know, what do you plan to do with this? Martin Harris said, well, I just want a confirmation that this is legit because I'm about to mortgage my home in order to, uh, you know, based in order to help th this this boy translate these plates. Uh, Charles Anton, thinking that he was being duped, said, give me back that certificate. And he tore it up and he said, you know, I cannot read a sealed book. Or he said, bring it to me and I'll do the translation or I'll find someone to do the translation. And he said, well, a part of it's sealed. And he said, well, I cannot, I cannot read a sealed book, uh, which is literally what uh, was prophesied by Isaiah in verses 17 and 18 here. Um, Professor Anthon obviously denies that this ever took place, or he denies that he ever gave a, a certificate. Um, but, you know, whether or not he actually gave the certificate, the fact of the matter is Martin Harris, upon uh, the strength of this experience, as well as uh, talking with uh, with others at Columbia, um, about the about the legitimacy uh, of of these characters and their actual uh, ancient uh, their ancient origins, uh, based on the strength of these discussions, Martin Harris did return and did mortgage his his house and his farm in order to help the prophet uh, with the translation process. So, again, Professor Anton can all he want claims that he didn't actually give the certificate, but the fact of the matter is, based on his conversation 
uh, with Martin Harris. Martin Harris did exactly uh, what uh, Professor Anthem was afraid that he wouldn't do, uh, or afraid that he would do, and, and allegedly tore up the certificate because of it. So clearly he said something, or clearly uh, their interaction uh, gave comfort to Martin Harris so that he would uh, proceed with supporting Joseph throughout the translation process. And with that, let's read uh, verse 20. Then shall the Lord God say unto him, The learned shall not read them, for they have rejected them, and I am able to do my own work. Wherefore, thou shalt read the words which I shall give unto thee. So again, we have this distinction here between the Lord's way of doing things and the world's way of doing things. The Lord's way is often uh, simple. It often appears to be unsophisticated, at least the, those of the world that consider themselves to be sophisticated. And, and as, a result, as a result, the learned do not read them. Just as Charles Anthon refused uh, to even consider uh, the legitimacy of the Book of Mormon because it was sealed, it was sealed to him, uh, many in the world refuse to consider and take the Book of Mormon seriously uh, because to them, their minds are sealed because they, they cannot appreciate uh, the power of God. They reject the possibility of miracles. To this, uh, Elder Neil A. Maxwell said the following, This is not solely a reference to Professor Anthon since the plural pronoun they is used in verse 20, which we just read. The reference suggests the mindset of most of the learned of the world who, by and large, do not take the Book of Mormon seriously. Even when they read it, they do not really read it, except with a mindset which excludes miracles, including the miracles of the books coming forth by the gift and power of God. So it goes back to what we were just talking about in verse 26. The churches of the world, the philosophies of the world, reject this idea that God is able to do miracles. Where God, on the other hand, is saying, of course I'm able to do miracles. I am a God of miracles. I have always been a miracle, a God of miracle. You want a miracle? Here's the Book of Mormon. Here's this incredible book that you cannot explain away. And the world's response is to, well, maybe if we ignore it, maybe it'll just kind of go away by itself. But again, the Book of Mormon is this in-your-face evidence that God is able to do miracles. Let's turn to verses 25 and 26 in chapter 27. For as much as this people draw near unto me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear towards me is taught by the precepts of men, therefore I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, yea, a marvelous work and a wonder, and the wisdom of their wise and learned shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent shall be hid. So God's work, this plan of God's, his ability to bring forth this plan whose focus is the salvation of his children, it, it seems like it's intended in some ways to fly in the face of the world and its philosophies. You know, it's a big uh, you know, it's, it's a big evidence that the philosophies of the world uh, do not work. They leave you hollow. They leave you empty. They leave you lacking. Whereas God's ways are designed to confront those. And as the end of verse 26 says, the wisdom of the wise and the learned shall perish. And it perishes with them. It is a temporary knowledge, a temporary learning. The philosophies of the world would never begin to explain what happens to our soul once it departs this earth. 
This is not their realm, yet they claim their realm is the only possible realm. Well, their philosophies perish with them. Their philosophies do not are not able to break the bands of death as Christ did through his resurrection. And so, you know, because of that, you know, find to study them, find to, you know, become smarter and to increase our intellectual uh, acuity and capacity uh, through our ability to understand the things of the world. But to the extent that we put all of our eggs in the basket of the philosophies of the world, we are doing ourselves an enormous disservice. We should be intimately familiar with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when there is a, a, an apparent uh, contradiction between the two, we should always lean in favor of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the marvelous work and the wonder his gospel and that marvelous work is will always take priority and take precedent and power uh, over the plans of the world. Verse, uh, sorry, chapter twenty-eight now, verses seven and eight. Yea, and there shall be many which shall say, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and it shall be well with us. And there shall also be many which shall say, Eat, drink, and be merry. Nevertheless, fear God; He will justify in committing a little sin. Ye lie a little, take the advantage of one because of his word. Dig a pit for thy neighbor, there is no harm in doing this. And do all these things, for tomorrow we die. And if it so be that we are guilty, God will beat us with a few stripes. And at last we shall be saved in the kingdom of God. So here we have uh, a different approach to the philosophies of the world. In verse 7, it's the approach that says, Yeah, there is nothing after this life. Don't even worry about it. Well, that's kind of the philosophies we were just talking about. But verse 8 kind of takes it to a, to a new level in which it says, well, maybe there might be something to it, but who are we to worry about it? Why would we worry about it? Let's just enjoy this earth while we have it. And if there is something after it, well, we'll worry about it at that point. God's probably a pretty merciful guy, and uh, he's, he's, he might punish us a little bit, but, but we'll be okay in the end. I mean, what an unbelievably short-sighted uh, philosophy. I've heard, uh, and I think, and this makes sense to me, it certainly resonates with me that the idea of poverty is a mindset. And it's a mindset of not looking towards the future in your financial decisions, right? The two extremes of that are, if you're incredibly impoverished and you go out and you actually commit uh, theft in order to get what you want, yeah, you're getting what you want right away, but at the risk of risking years in prison. I mean, what that's, you know, about is short-sighted in your desire to accumulate wealth as you can possibly get. Whereas the truly wealthy, on the other hand, they're not even thinking about the next, what's going to happen tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. They're thinking generations in advance and they're planning to not even prepare for a good life for themselves, but to provide a good life to their children and their grandchildren. Uh, so to the extent that wealth is the ability to make a sacrifice now and to plan for the future, at least the mindset of the wealthy as opposed to the mindset of the, po- of the impoverished, this philosophy of let's focus on the things of the world uh, today and then if there happens to be an afterlife, then we'll worry about it then and maybe get punished a little bit. But in the end, we should be okay. 
that's an incredibly impoverished mindset. That is a, a, a spiritual philosophy of, that is a philosophy of the spiritually impoverished. Whereas the spiritually wealthy would say, yeah, we're in this world at the moment. We'll do the best that we can. But this world is not my focus because I know that there is a world to come. I know that there is something that is going to come after this. That is, uh, from this point of view, a wealthy mindset rather than a spiritually uh, impoverished mindset of those that we read about uh, in verse 8. Verses 20 through 22. For behold, at that day shall he rage in the hearts of the children of men and stir them up to anger against that which is good. And others will he pacify and lull them away into carnal security that they will say all is well in Zion. Yea, Zion prospereth. All is well. And thus the devil cheateth their souls and leadeth them away carefully down to hell. And behold, others he flattereth away and telleth them there is no hell. And he saith unto them, I am no devil, for there is none. And thus he whispereth in their ears until he grasp them with his awful chains from whence there is no deliverance. So going back to this notion of the devil leading us by the neck uh, with a flaxen cord, uh, we, we have the same idea here where, God, where the devil carefully leads them astray. He doesn't necessarily force them at the beginning. He lures them, he tempts them, and gets them into a place where they can no longer escape. You know, one thinks, uh, you know, back to the story of, of, of Pinocchio uh, and, and the friends that he follows, who eventually they get to the point where they can no longer, uh, where they're turned into donkeys, not because they were forced to, but they were lured away and, and they follow that path of temptation, uh, the easy path until they can, uh, until they're bound, until they are trapped and they can no longer escape. That's exactly the way in which Satan works. He makes something appear good. We follow that for a little bit, only to find out later that we are completely in his in his bounds. And so, because of that, uh, we need to be careful. Verse twenty one tells us tells us of this philosophy that says everything is good, everything is okay. Don't need to worry. This easy life approach, this uh, carefree approach. We need to always be on our guard. We need to always be looking for ways in which we can improve. We need to be always looking for things that, that need to be made better, uh, including <clears throat> within the church. I think it can be a very dangerous philosophy in which we just uh, you know, nonchalantly, nonchalantly say, oh, everything is well in the church. Uh, the brethren have everything under control. We just simply need to uh, do everything exactly like they say, and we will be just fine. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying rebel against the brethren, but I think this easy, uh, mindless, blind following uh, is not a healthy philosophy. If there is something wrong in the church, we need to say so. We shouldn't be afraid uh, that we will be, uh, you know, deemed to be, uh, you know, rebels or deemed to be, uh, you know, speaking out of turn you know, this is every, this is our church as much as it is President Nelson's church. But of course, it's neither of our churches. It's Jesus Christ's church. And President Nelson cannot be everywhere. The brethren cannot be everywhere. So if we see something that is going wrong in our ward, in our quorum, in our congregations, we need to speak up. We need to take a little, you know, act like we're invested in this thing. 
not just that we're, you know, free, free riders along for the free trip. Uh, this is our home. This is our church. This is where we worship. This is where we go to draw closer to God. And if there's something that prevents that from happening, uh, we need to speak up and we need to make it a better place. We need to take action to fix it and to make it a better place, whatever that might be. And again, I'm not calling for people to pretend to be that they are the to pretend to be prophets, pretend to be that they're the presidents of the church. I'm just saying, don't just sit back and let whatever happens happens. Take a little ownership in this beautiful organization that we're a part of, recognizing that you know the brethren are busy uh, leading the church, but because of that, they can't see every single thing that goes on. Neither can your bishop. Neither can your elders quorum or your release society president. Uh, so let's take the initiative, take ownership, and make this church uh, the way it is supposed to be. Always guided by the Spirit. Always guided by charity and a love and a desire to help others be better. Uh, but let's not just be there saying everything is well within the church because Nephi explicitly warns us against uh, this attitude. Uh, verse 30, uh, still in chapter 28. For behold, thus saith the Lord God, I will give unto the children of men line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little, and blessed are those who hearken unto my precepts and lend an ear unto my counsel, for they shall learn wisdom. And unto him that receiveth I will give more, and from them that shall say we have enough, from them shall be taken away even that which they have. Now this verse uh, is a little bit scary to me, um, because I'm in some ways tend to be the type that says, hey, you know, life is good. I've, I've learned a lot. I know a lot. Um, and I'm happy with where I'm at. Uh, whereas my wife, on the other hand, she looks around and is always seeing areas that, that can be better. She's always er- seeing areas where, that can be improved. And, and these two verses, uh, the ones we just, verse 30, which we just read, this line upon line concept goes well with the idea that, you know, we shouldn't be lured away by the concept of all is well in Zion. We believe in eternal progression. And because we believe in eternal progression, that means that we always believe that the, the us of tomorrow is going to be better than the us of today, or at least it should be, which means that we always have room for improvement, which means that we always have areas in which we must do better. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is a plan that shows us how we can do better, that teaches us to be better, that tells us that we should always be looking in ways for ways in which we can improve ourselves. And if we get lackadaisical in our approach, if we stop progressing and improving and looking for ways to improve, we're going to be in a world of hurt. And Nephi tells us here, from that, if we get lackadaisical, if we get too comfortable, we're not going to, not only will we not progress, we will start regressing. Eternal progression, repentance, improvement are fundamental concepts of every follower of Jesus Christ. We need to always be making ourselves better. That's a tiring philosophy. That's in some ways an unpleasant idea. But it's also beautiful in the idea that it means that we can always do better. Every single one of us. And so it's not important The important thing is not where we are at the moment. It's the direction that we're heading. Even if we're, you know, very spiritually advanced and if we, you know, have tons of gospel knowledge uh, and if we uh, frequently feel the spirit, but we don't act upon that, we're not improving ourselves. 
Our situation isn't nearly as good as, you know, the new convert or the person who has just been reactivated, who has made some mistakes in the past, but they're on the path for improvement. And that's where we want to be, is making sure that we're always improving and always getting better. Verse 32. Woe be unto the Gentiles, saith the Lord God of hosts, for notwithstanding I shall lengthen out mine arm unto them from day to day, they will deny me. Nevertheless, I will be merciful unto them, saith the Lord God, if they will repent and come unto me, for mine arm is lengthened out all the day long, saith the Lord God of hosts. And I love the scripture because it reminds me of that phrase that we heard so frequently last week in the Isaiah chapters. His anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And it's the idea that, you know, in verse 32, he says, he's basically saying that, you know, any Gentile uh, that accepts the gospel of Jesus Christ, his hand is extended to them just as it was to the Jews. So it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter where you come from. As long as you're willing to take hold of the hand of Jesus Christ that is extended to you, as long as you're willing to become his follower, as long as you're willing to enter into covenants with him, you will progress and you will become better and you will uh, eventually return to the presence of God. That's his promise with everyone that's willing to take his hand. Chapter 29, verses 6 through 8. And here he's uh, warning those that uh, will not accept the Book of Mormon or or will get too comfortable uh, with just the Bible. Thou fool that shall say, A Bible, a Bible, we have got a Bible, and we need no more Bible. Have ye obtained a Bible, save it were by the Jews? Know ye not that there are more nations than one? Know ye not that I, the Lord your God, have created all men, and that I remember those who are upon the isles of the sea, and that I rule up in the heavens above and in the earth beneath? And I bring forth my word unto the children of men, yea, even upon all nations of the earth. Wherefore, murmur ye, because that ye shall receive more of my word? Know ye not that the testimony of two nations is a witness unto you that I am God, that I remember one nation like unto the another? Wherefore, I speak the same words unto one nation, like unto another. And when the two nations shall run together, the testimony of the two nations shall run together also. So here he tells the people that, uh, look, if you're happy with the Bible, that's great. But just because you love the Bible doesn't mean that you can't accept other testimonies by other nations. And it's such a basic concept to me. I've never understood this fixation with just having the Bible. Uh, some of you may have noticed there's a commenter uh, on, on, on this uh, cast on my YouTube channel here that is always, uh, you know, deriding us Mormons. Um, he, he's really just a troll, but he's always deriding us members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints saying how stupid we are because we believe in more than the Bible. Again, this philosophy has never made sense to me. That's great that you love the Bible. I love the Bible too, but Why does that mean you can't love other books as well, especially if you believe that God is the God of the whole earth? Why would you believe that God is only capable of communicating his gospel to one people historically? If God is the God of the whole earth, then doesn't it make sense that he's preached his gospel to the whole earth? And doesn't it make sense that some of those would actually record down their testimonies? Now, so far, we only have the testimonies of two. We have the Bible and we have the Book of Mormon both of which are wonderful, both of which go together. Uh, You can't help but wonder if there's more out there 
that we haven't received yet or that we haven't fully recognized yet. Uh, you know, I study, uh, you know, I, I study Chinese culture and Chinese culture is a very big part uh, of my life. And I can promise you there's certain things uh, within Chinese culture that, that are very strong parallels between uh, the restored gospel uh, and, and, and Chinese culture. And even if there isn't a, uh, you know, a book of, uh, a, a book of Li or a book of uh, Chen or uh, you have Tao Te Ching and you have other, uh, you know, Chinese scriptures out there, you know, there's truth in their culture. Even if it's not written down, even if it's not brought forward in a miraculous way in which the Book of Mormon has been brought forward, that doesn't mean those cultures aren't worth studying and it doesn't mean the parallels between those cultures and the restored gospel of Jesus Christ are not edifying and are not capable of drawing us closer to Jesus Christ. And, and this goes further in verses 10 through 12 uh, in which it says, Wherefore, because that ye have a Bible, ye know not suppose that it contains all my words, neither need ye suppose that I have not caused more to be written. For I command all men, both in the east and in the west, and in the north and in the south, and in the islands of the sea, that they shall write the words which I speak unto them. For out of the books which shall be written, I will judge the world, every man, according to their works, according to that which is written. For behold, I shall speak unto the Jews, and they shall write it. And I shall also speak unto the Nephites, and they shall write it. And I shall also speak unto the other tribes of the house of Israel, which I have led away, and they shall write it. And I shall also speak unto all nations of the earth, and they shall write it. Again, Nephi testifies of this idea that God is a God of the whole earth. He has preached his gospel to all of his children, all that he can. And there are some of those that have written that gospel down. And if we will but take the time to study the other cultures, we will see great parallels. We will find great truths in them. And as we bring those truths together we will get a more fulsome picture of Jesus Christ and of his grandeur and his greatness and his ability, not just to save, you know, the 15 million members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but his ability to provide salvation to all of God's children that are willing to accept that hand that is extended to them. And to the extent that we deny uh, the ability of God to save others to the extent that we say, no, 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 it's only those within our church that are going to uh, be saved and going to be exalted. Uh, I think we get in trouble and I think we become like those that say a Bible, a Bible, we have a Bible. God is only able to save those that adhere to the Bible. God is able to save many people. Now, of course, we believe that we are unique and that we have the fullness of the gospel. We have the priesthood, we have the ordinances, we have the temple. And those are things that cannot be done without. But we must recognize that, that God is working in so many ways across this great world with the billions of his children that currently inhabit it. So there's no surprise, no, no doubt in my mind that God is doing everything that he can to save as many of his children as possible. In some way, I do believe that all has to be filtered through his priesthood, through ordinances, through those covenants. And right now, I also believe that we are the only church with that priesthood, and with temples to administer those ordinances. But that doesn't mean that it's only members of our church right now that are going to be saved. I don't know how it's going. everything is going to happen. Obviously, missionary work is going to play a great part of it. Obviously, the work for the dead is going to play a significant part of it. 
But I can, you know, I cannot deny that I believe that God is doing everything that he can to save as many of his children as he can, because that's what Nephi taught. And that's that beautiful truth is what, what makes sense to me as well. Let's turn to chapter 30 uh, and, and wrap this up. Uh, verse 2. For behold, I say unto you that as many of the Gentiles as will repent are the covenant people of the Lord, and as many of the Jews as will not repent shall be cast off. For the Lord covenanteth with none, save it be with them that repent and believe in his Son, who is the Holy One of Israel. Just as the Jews thought they were the only means of salvation, we need to make sure that we don't believe that we have a monopoly on uh, salvation and on truth and on goodness. Yes, we have a few unique things that are critical to salvation. But at the same time, let's recognize that God loves all of his children and he's doing everything that he can. Of course, we should be out there sharing the word, preaching the gospel, helping others to receive those ordinances. But we also believe that Christ is able to save all of his children who will repent and who will covenant with him. Again, I do believe that that will have to flow through the priesthood channels that we currently do have a monopoly on. That is what I believe. But I don't claim to understand all of the ways in which God is currently busy uh, providing and laying the, the at least the pathwork to salvation for all of his children. Verses 7 through 8. And it shall come to pass that the Jews which are scattered also shall begin to believe in Christ, and they shall begin to gather in upon the face of the land. And as many as shall believe in Christ shall also become a delightsome people. And it shall come to pass that the Lord God shall commence his work among all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, and bring about the restoration of his people upon the earth. Obviously, the restoration is a word that we like because we believe we are a, we are a restorationist church. We believe that we are a restoration uh, of the ancient gospel of Jesus Christ, of his uh, priesthood authority, and of the ordinances that he came to bring about. Uh, but we have to recognize that the Lord shall commence his work among all nations. And I'll just say I'm not, commence, I, I'm not convinced that the commencement of that work is solely limited to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Again, don't get me wrong. I love this church. I believe that it is true. I spent two years of my life as a missionary teaching others, hoping that they would come to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ as taught through this church. But at the same time, I believe God is busy doing what he can to save as many of his children as possible, bringing them unto, bringing them unto him, preparing them to, re, to repent and to receive the ordinances and covenants that are necessary for salvation. Let's end with verses 15 and 16. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. We're talking about the millennium here. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Wherefore, the things of all nations shall be made known. Yea, all things shall be made known unto the children of men. So I'll close with my testimony that uh, I love these chapters in Nephi. And as we tie everything together uh, with this promise that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Remember, we started this lesson by comparing this knowledge of the Lord, the gospel of Jesus Christ, against the, the philosophies of the world, against the, the godless, the miracle-less philosophies of the world that are set up only to get gain and to elevate those uh, that, that are peddling them. And then this was, uh, this was opposed 
or, or you know, juxtapose against the gospel of Jesus Christ. This message of love, this message of charity, this message of hope and salvation, where those that labor within uh, the gospel, the framework of the gospel of Jesus Christ, do it not for themselves, but for this concept of Zion, in which you know all will be saved and be prepared for Jesus Christ. I'm grateful to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because I know that this church plays a critical role, a unique role in that process. But it is not the only role. There are millions of people throughout the world that are good people, that are doing what they believe the Lord is telling them to do. They're repenting. They're trying to become the best that they can. They're willing to make promises to God and striving to keep those promises. I, I'll admit I don't know exactly how all of those are going to come uh, work into the framework of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but I'm just grateful that I know the gospel of Jesus Christ and that I am a member of the restored church of Jesus Christ. And I believe in a God that is powerful and is able to do his work. And just as those who, you know, cry a Bible, a Bible, we have a Bible, you know, they were guilty of limiting God's work. I don't think we should be guilty of limiting God's work either to say God's work only takes place within the framework of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Let's be thankful for our membership in the church while also recognizing that our God is one who loves all of his children and is doing miraculous things throughout the world to prepare his children to return to live with him. And that is our ultimate goal, to return to live with God through the covenants that we make, through the priesthood power, through the blessings that we find in the temple because of our membership of the church, for which we should be grateful and which I testify of in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.